Moving on, First Samuel. Hopefully, you are you are uh, reading through First Samuel with us. Several, a few years back, actually. Now it's probably been three years. There was a, there was a several uh, surveys that that came out that talked about how the American Christian, even committed folks to church, how for lack of a better word, ignorant we are of the Bible. And so we've committed over the last couple of years to spend, spend some time, some significant time on us reading through the, the Bible together, taking, uh, taking a book and, and reading together. So we're reading through 1 Samuel and we're a chapter a day, and then we're bringing a, a teaching or whatever from, from those chapters. Just a quick, quick review, and you can pull out your notes, and there's a place online as well for those who would like to follow along there. God supernaturally brought uh, Samuel onto the scene to lead or influence Israel during a time when there was, there was no healthy political or spiritual leadership. God's people were at a point, really a low point in basically every, every way. They were apathetic spiritually, and the culture at that point was inside and outside. The church was chaotic. Um, the Israelites, God's people, were being, were being defeated by their enemies just right and left over and over and over again. So there, it was, there was confusion, there was discouragement, there was apathy, there was ungodliness even among God's people and even in the leadership of God's people. So Samuel was used by God to bring Israel into an, an extended time of victory and revival and peace. It said, we've, we saw in last week's reading that uh, as he got older up until 80 years old, that before he came onto the scene, they were constantly being hit with, with their enemies coming against them and defeating them and beating them down constantly. And yet Samuel comes in and starts influencing them. And it says that he brought them to a place where those enemies that were constantly coming against them, all of a the sudden there was, there was, they were winning battles and Bring in a peacetime. And now Samuel has gotten old, and the people did what happened over and over and over again. As you read through, especially the Old Testament, but it, even in the New Testament, and if you pay attention even today, and if you pay attention to your own life, including me, if I'm not intentional about it, you see this cycle that happens over and over again. Things would be, would be going pretty good, 
for a while, and then they would become apathetic and somewhat distant from God again. And then that would lead to defeat. So it's a cycle that's seen over and over again with the Israelites reading in the Old Testament. God delivers and blesses them, and they get ap- then they get apathetic, then they become distant from God, and then they rebel against God, and which leads them to a very difficult place with a lot of pain and with a lot of hardship and a lot of confusion, and then they cry out to God and ask Him to forgive, and they repent, and then God brings somebody to lead them back to a place of revival and blessing and peace and prosperity, and then they get apathetic toward God, distant before God, rebellious against God. You see it over and over and over again. We can make fun of that and call them stupid, But if we're not intentional, we will do the same thing. So we come to a time now in this reading this week and the end of last week's reading where the Israelites have had this extended time of peace and blessing, and now Samuel is old, and they're beginning this cycle again. They become tired of being different from everybody else around them. All the other nations had kings to lead them. And up to this point in history, the Israelites never had an earthly king. They were led by the king of kings. And God would raise up and anoint a prophet, a priest, or a judge to bring direction, correction, deliverance when it was needed. But now, the people decided that they wanted to be more like everybody else and have a king just like all the other nations. And all of a sudden, it's... God wasn't happy about it, and Samuel was very disappointed, and it hurt his, hurt his feelings. And this was actually in chapter 8 where God told Samuel to give them what, what they asked for. Sometimes God gives us what we ask for, even whenever it's not his perfect will, just because we constantly think that's what we want. And he lets us find out, goes ahead and gives it to us, and we find out that's not what we really, <laughs> not what we really wanted. And he told Samuel, and it's a really important point for any of us to take on, that he told Samuel, he said, they haven't rejected you as the prophet, they've rejected me as their king. And God told Samuel to anoint Saul as Israel's first king. If you'll remember at the very, the overview that we gave, the very, part one, there were three main characters that were, were points of focus throughout this book. You had Samuel, you had Saul, who became the first king of Israel, and then David will come into the picture as well. And it's interesting 
how, especially in the Old Testament, how names were descriptive and sometimes prophetic. Because the name Saul or Shaul means asked for or prayed for. Isn't that interesting? He was, he was what the people had asked for. And Saul had the classic characteristics of what you would think of a king. He was tall. In fact, the Bible says he was a head taller than everybody else. He was handsome. It said more handsome than anybody else. And many times God uses tall and handsome people to lead. I don't know how that works. Another dad joke. I appreciate y'all kind of jumping in there with me a little bit. He was from a wealthy and influential family, even though he said he wasn't. If you read whenever a description of him, his dad, Saul's dad, was an influential man in the community. And he was a reluctant leader. They had to, they had to really urge him to to take this position. So that leads us up to this week's reading of, of chapters 11 through 15, and it begins with Israel's first battle after Saul had been anointed king. So I want to highlight just a few things real, real quickly out of these chapters, and we'll be focusing mainly on chapter 11 and chapter 14. There's a whole lot of other stuff, but we're just going to focus on a few things. So the very first obvious point I'd like to make is this. To try to negotiate or compromise with the enemy is never good. To try to negotiate or compromise with the enemy is never good. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse, verses 1 and 2. About a month later, this is a, a month later is a month after Saul was anointed king. So this is his first major challenge. King Nahash of Ammon led his army against the Israelites' town of Jabesh-Gilead. But all the citizens of Jabesh asked, asked for peace. So they're coming, they're timid, and they start trying to negotiate, saying, make a treaty with us, and we will be your servants, they pleaded. Verse 2, all right, Nahas said, but on, only on one condition. And look at this condition, because it's never good to try to negotiate or compromise with the enemy. I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you as a disgrace to all Israel. Wow. Again, many times the meaning of Old Testament named or names in the Old Testament meant something. And Nahash, that name meant serpent or snake. Isn't that interesting? So they were they were negotiating with the serpent. 
Let me give you just a few things about whenever you start trying to negotiate with your enemy, the enemy of your soul, your spiritual enemy, and it's not flesh and blood, it is the serpent. The enemy actively works against our ability to see things clearly. He will poke an eye out, I promise you that and brings deception into your life. The enemy actively works against our ability to effectively fight against him. He even said, I want to make you a disgrace. I want to make you feel shame. I want to I want to make you feel like you're lower instead of higher. I want to make you feel like you can't fight. I want you to be ashamed, doubtful, fearful, weak, discouraged, and feel hopeless. That will always happen whenever you start trying to negotiate with the enemy of your soul. And whenever, the, whenever Nahash came and said, I'm going to pluck it, you say, why did he go specifically say for the, for the right eye? Well, he didn't want him to see clearly. And he didn't want them to be able to fight because they would hold the sword up with their left hand and then fight with their right. So they're covering up like this to where makes it where that makes it very difficult for them to fight without bringing their head completely out from behind the shield. So he wants to deceive, disgrace. And then the, act, the enemy actively works to ultimately dominate our lives. He wants to do whatever. And if it can just be one step to get you to a place to be able to be dominated so that he can destroy you. New Testament says the enemy comes to steal. Jesus said to steal, kill, and destroy he said, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Isn't that awesome? All right. So anytime you try to negotiate and compromise with the enemy, it's never good. Which leads to the next point that we see in this, we'll see in this passage. Righteous anger is a good response against the enemy's tactics. Righteous anger is a good response against the enemy's tactics. Look at verse 5. Starting with verse 5. Saul had been plowing a field with his oxen. Again, I'm saying he was a reluctant leader. He went back to plowing the farm. And when he returned to town, he asked, what's the matter? Why is everyone crying? So they told him, about the message from Nabash. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he became very angry. Verse 7. Before we go there, I pray that every one of us, when the enemy starts bringing temptation into our life, that we have a righteous anger that builds up. Not an anger at people, but an anger at the enemy. 
and he took two oxen and he cut them into pieces. They were brutal back then. And sent the messengers to carry them throughout Israel with this message. This is what will happen to your oxen of everyone who refuses to follow Saul and Samuel into battle. And the Lord made the people afraid of Saul's anger and all of them came out together as one. Verse 8, when Saul mobilized them at Bezek, he found that there were, look at that, 300,000 men from Israel and 30,000 men from Judah. All of a sudden, you've got a great army that were unified, that were passionate, that were excited about saving their eyes. <laughs> And it goes on to say, we're not going to read all of these, but it goes on to say that Saul came up with a great surprise attack and they slaughtered the enemy. Because any time we have the right attitude toward the enemy and the right attitude toward God, the enemy loses every time. Saul led him to a great victory, and his leadership was solidified at that point. In fact, we see that, that there were some who weren't in agreement with him becoming king, and they were bad-mouthing him and all of this, saying they weren't going to lead, and then they had this victory. And these others that were, that were following now <clears throat> started talking and saying, where are those that were saying he wasn't a good leader? We need to go ahead and slaughter them. While we're in the business of slaughtering, let's just go ahead and slaughter them too. And Saul said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to forgive. Another principle as far as your attitude toward the enemy of your soul and how we should approach the people of God and anybody else. Keep our hearts soft and protected from bitterness toward people. So he had a great beginning as king. And it's important to have a great beginning. But it's even more important to have a great ending. It's good to start well, but you need to finish well. In fact, you can have a real difficult start, and you can even have a real difficult past the start. But the awesome thing about God and something that we need to focus on is that we can, we can still finish well if we will just focus on finishing well instead of focusing on our difficult start. So Saul had a great start, but we will find, in fact, even in the reading, and we're not going to spend a lot of time here because it'll, you, we will see it over and over again as we go through this book, that he had a terrible finish. And we see one of Saul's first failures just two chapters later within three years. 
within three years, you could see that he wasn't going, didn't look like he was going to finish well. And that leads us to really another really important point that I want to end this Father's Day message before we go get what we got. It kind of ties into the Father's Day. Your earthly father's victories and failures do not prevent or ensure your personal victories or failures. Some of us are really happy about that, depending on if you had a saw father figure or father, or if you had a Samuel figure father. I had a Samuel figure father. I wish I could say, man, because I had a great dad that was godly and faithful to God, and he could sing that song with a, a dad and mom, sing their song, the song, the goodness of God and the faithfulness of God, and have seen it happen and has modeled that in front of me, but yet what they modeled in front of me doesn't ensure I have to make that decision for myself. And at the same time, just be, you may have had a Saul figure as a father that was not faithful, that may have been absent, that may have been a terrible example, but that doesn't mean that you're locked in and you're destined to be this, run the same cycle as your, what your father did. Praise God for that. And we see it here. Saul had a son named Jonathan, and he was, he was full of faith, and he was humble, and unlike his dad, he never lost his faith, and he never lost his humility. He became best friends with David, and their connection shouldn't be surprising because they had some of the same type of faith for God. It was alike. And you see it in chapter 14 that we read this week. The Philistines again began threatening Israel. And Saul's army had shrunk. Listen, his army had shrunk from 330,000 men down to a few hundred men. We could talk about that for a few minutes on what compromise will do to you. And they were, they were timid and hesitant and afraid, but look at Jonathan, because you're not destined to be what your dad is. Who your dad was doesn't prevent you from being who God wants you to be. Look at verse, starting verse 1 of chapter 14. One day Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come, let's go. He got tired of this sitting around. 
listening to all the threats. Sounds a whole lot like David. Let's go over to where the Philistines have their outposts. But Jonathan didn't tell his father what he was doing. Verse 4. To reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozaz and Sene. I don't know what I don't know how to say those words. I don't know what they mean. Didn't even try to figure out what they meant. The cliff on the north was in front of Mechmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geba. He goes on and says, Let's go across. To the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will help us for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether you have 330,000 or you have a few hundred or you just have two. Verse 7, so what do you think is best? The armor bearer replied, I'm do what you think is best, the armor bearer replied. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. It's always good to have a brother. Verse 8. All right then, Jonathan told him. We will cross over and let them see us. If they say to us, stay where you are or we'll kill you, then we'll stop and not go up to them. Verse 10. Seth, y'all can come on back while we're reading this if you'd like. But if they say, come up, and, uh, come up and fight, then we will go up. That will be the Lord's sign that he will help us defeat them. And when the Philistines saw them coming, they shouted, look, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. They knew that they had been timid. They knew that they were afraid. They knew that they had their bluff on them, and they were just tormenting them over and over again, had been. Then the men from the outpost shouted to Jonathan, come on up here, and we'll teach you a lesson. Sounds like men, doesn't it? Come on and climb right, and come on and climb right behind me, Jonathan said to the armor bearer, for the Lord will help us defeat them. God, help us to have that kind of faith. So they climbed up using both hands and feet. In other words, sometimes there is some effort to even climb to the battle and the victory that God wants you to have. I mean, it was such a steep climb. They were having to use their hands to, to climb up this cliff to, to fight a battle that was against all odds unless you had God on your side. Unless he showed up. So they climbed up using both hands and feet and the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer killed those who came behind him. It doesn't matter if it seems like the enemy has you surrounded. If our faith is in the right place, fourteen, verse fourteen. They killed some twenty men in all, and their bodies were scattered over about half an acre. And suddenly, 
Panic broke out in the Philistine army, both in the camp and in the field, including even the outposts and raiding parties. And just then, God showed up again, and an earthquake uh, struck. And everyone was terrified. And then all of a sudden, revival hit the rest of those timid folks, and they did come out of the holes. And Saul came in, and they were ready. They were chasing folks down at that point because people are looking for people who have faith in God. And Jonathan never, he never got stuck in his dad's failures. You see it over and over again throughout his life. He didn't get stuck in his dad's failures. He broke the cycle for his family, for his life. And each and every one of us can break any father or family cycles as well. Don't allow yourself to get caught up in the victim mentality that is so prevalent today to where we blame everybody for this, that, and the other. And man, it was my dad's fault. It was my mama's fault. It was my brother's fault. It was my teacher's fault. It was somebody else's fault. It was anybody's fault, but not my fault. Don't get caught up with that. Forgive, quit looking back, start looking up and looking forward because God has a plan. And it doesn't matter if you have all kinds of failures in your past. Go ahead and get your feet and your hands to work and climbing up the mountain to win the battles that God has for you. Because that is his plan, is for you to win your battles. And he will empower us to do it. God working in and through you is dependent on you, not your dad, not your mama, or anybody else. The flip side of that is true as well. You may not have a Saul-like dad with a whole lot of failures and cycles that he set up, but you may have a Samuel-like dad like I had. Very thankful that I had. That modeled faith and faithfulness. You still have to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In fact, one of the, we didn't bring it up a few weeks ago, but one of the reasons why the Israelite elders said that they wanted a king was because Samuel's sons weren't like Samuel. So just like father's failures don't prevent you from experiencing the victories 
your father's successes doesn't ensure and guarantee your successes, your faithfulness, and your victories. Because Samuel was the great model before his sons, and yet the Bible says that they were taking bribes like crazy. They weren't living the life in front of the people. And I've heard messages before saying that Samuel, you know, it was because he probably spent too much time traveling in ministry and being a judge everywhere. But I'm telling you, you can have the best model and him spend time with you and all of that, and you still mess up. Adam and Eve had the best father. <laughs> Perfect. They still messed up. So here's my question. Most important question. How's your relationship with how's your personal relationship with Jesus? right now. Maybe you started real well. You're starting to get apathetic. I want to encourage you to make the decision today that I'm not going to compromise or negotiate with the enemy any longer because I know that's going to lead down to a bad, bad path. Maybe you've had a whole bunch of failures already. You started well, and you're right now, you have messed up. We don't have to be discouraged on either side. All we have to do is say, Lord, now, right now, I'm making a fresh surrender and I'm declaring my desire to be yours and I want you to work in me so that I can win the battles that you have for me to live in this life against the enemy so that I can inspire and lead and model and bring passion to all those around me. God, work in us today. As we surrender afresh and anew to you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and